Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast and president of Chatham University. I'm delighted to be here today with Lynn Pascarella, who is the president of the American Association of Colleges and Universities and Phi Beta Kappa Society, as well as the former president of Mount Holyoke College. Um, Lynn has also just written a book on called What We Value, Public Health, Social Justice, and Educating for Democracy. Lynn, it's great to have you on on the podcast. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Lynn, could you start out by just telling us a little bit about your own educational background? Where where did you grow up? Where did you go to go to go to college? I grew up in a small town in northeastern Connecticut. Um, neither of my parents had the opportunity to graduate from high school. My father joined the war effort shortly after Pearl Harbor Day, uh, in World War II. When he was 16 years old, he got permission from his mother to join the war. And my mother got married at 16 at a time when girls could not be in school and be married. And so she gave up her dream of of being a high school English teacher. Uh, Both of my parents were factory workers throughout their lives. And my mother ended up um, as a single parent. And when I graduated from high school, I had the opportunity to go on a full scholarship to my state's flagship institution, but made a decision to stay home and be a caregiver for my mother who had become chronically ill. And so I had uh, the opportunity to go to college through a small community college, Quinnebog Valley Community College, that had just opened up in the town in which I lived. And, you know, the classes were held in church basements the or, or the local high school after hours. The faculty offices were in trailers. and uh, But yet we were part of a, a genuine community embarking on a shared endeavor around our quest for higher education. Uh, that experience transformed my life. I had a, an advisor there, the dean of students, who was a philosopher. He was also a philosophy professor. Everybody was doing double duty there. Um, And he said, you need to go to Mount Holyoke. It's a place for serious-minded women. And so I I took his advice and went to Mount Holyoke and graduated with a degree in philosophy and then transferred, uh, went on to get my PhD at, at Brown University. And when I left, I left with a deep and abiding commitment to access to excellence, regardless of socioeconomic background, to the centrality of liberal education and to political scientist Benjamin Barber's notion of colleges and universities as civic missions, where we not only educate people to be free, but we free them to be educable by serving as a visible force in the lives of those who have been most marginalized, most underserved in our society. And, and Lynn, in that your journey there, so were were you uh, an older student out at Mount Holyoke when you went back, or did you end up going in terms of the care you were doing for your mother and the community college? I was a traditional age student. I graduated from high school at seventeen, went to college, um, and and went right through. I had the opportunity, really the privilege, of going to college under Pell grants, Perkins loans. 
and CETA funds, the Comprehensive Employment Training Act, which was designed to train people in public service uh, through supporting them in the workforce. So all throughout college, I was working 35 hours a week. When I was at Mount Holyoke, I I drove home uh, on the weekends and and met my caregiving responsibilities. So I was fortunate to have those safety nets to allow me to attend school. But even with those safety nets, I mean, being a primary caregiver and working 35 hours a week, uh, along with an education at Mount Holyoke, that must have been a a very heavy load for for you just, just you know, at, at that young stage in your education? Uh, it was, but I was young. And I, I really did. I, I remember feeling that immense sense of gratitude and perhaps pride that the government would make an investment in me, that they would think that my education was somehow worthwhile. And I've always remembered that and tried to give back in whatever way that I can to the public purpose of higher education. And, and as you were deciding what you wanted to focus on within philosophy, how did you choose the area of medical ethics as as one area that that would be a a focus for you? I was always interested in issues of metaphysics, um, whether we have minds or souls in addition to bodies, um, questions of, of the meaning and purpose of life. And, you know, in part because of my own experience in, in being a caregiver, having to struggle with (laughs) the rules and regulations in the medical profession, Um, but also just because I found the work fascinating, those those kinds of fundamental questions of human existence that are brought to the fore through uh, medical ethics that intrigued me. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned that, you know, through your own journey and that, that early education, you'd always been passionate about the, the access mission of higher ed. Um, when did you make the decision that you might want to make the transition from a, a, a faculty member, a professor into higher ed leadership and, and to become a college president? You know, it, it, you know how this goes as a college president. Sometimes uh, it's not a deliberate decision. And I, you know, I mentioned that I wanted to give back in whatever way to the community um, in which I, I lived. And so when I was at the University of Rhode Island, I was there for 23 years and I taught philosophy and, and I served on committees and I was asked on a number of occasions if I'd chair committees and if I would uh, be a part of some leadership roles faculty. And I said, of course, I'll, I'll do that. And, and so I was asked at one point if I would serve as an associate dean in the graduate school uh, because I had been chair of the Institutional Review Board and they thought that that would be a good fit. And I said, of course. And it, so I kept getting asked to take on increasing leadership roles within the academy. So I never made a decision. In fact, I thought I would spend my career in the classroom, um, it, which, you know, public humanities, uh, there's nothing more gratifying than doing that inside and outside of the classroom. But I also, I loved the challenge of administrative work. I think philosophers are particularly suited to listening critically and with understanding to making the case for the kinds of resources institutions need. Uh, so that's how it came about. And, and how about the opportunity to go back and lead your alma mater at Mount Holyoke? How did that come about? And had you been looking at other college or university presidencies, or was this a, a unique situation with your, your ties there? I hadn't been looking. Um, I had joined the University of Hartford in 2008. And so it was a year and a half later that I was approached by a search firm who said I had been nominated uh, for the presidency of Mount Holyoke and asked if I was interested. And I said, of course, I would never give up the opportunity to serve an institution in such a significant way that, you know, an institution that changed my life. But I said, I, I have made a commitment to Walt Harrison, the president of the University of Hartford, to lead um, as the academic affairs in this institution um, I need to talk to him. And I said, and and by the way, I'm leaving for Africa tomorrow to do field work for the next several months. So unless you could come down today, I really can't pursue this. So I, ta- I remember talking to, to President Harrison in the parking lot of uh, the administrative building at the University of Hartford. And he said, you know, my mother, my sister are both Bryn Mawr graduates. Women's education is more important than ever. I knew this was going to happen, but you must do this. <laughs> so I had his blessing and I was thrilled um, by his mentorship and support. Uh, and then the search firm did come down that day and talk to me. And so it went from there. 
Great. And and obviously you had benefited directly yourself from a, a great women's college. Um, but it's a it's been a challenging time. As as you know, Chatham, we were an all women's institution like many of the formerly all women's institutions, we had gone all gender. Um, when you were taking on the leadership of Mount Holyoke, did you have a sense of, you know, what the challenges as well as opportunities you'd be facing and, and what were the, the key initiatives, the key areas that you focused on in your tenure there? I focused on creating pathways to careers. We established something called LINK, which was, uh, you know, L-Y-N-K, a nod to Mary Lyon, uh, the founder of Mount Holyoke. In, in 1837, she established the first women's college, which is, uh, was then a female seminary. And, you know, she said famously, go where no one else will go, do what no one else will do. And I I was looking at the challenges for higher education, in particular, this growing concern about the value added of college education and the ways in which there's a false narrative um, about Mount Holyoke, Chatham, other institutions existing within an ivory tower as a willful disconnect from the practical matters of everyday life. The kind of liberal education we offer students is the best preparation for work, citizenship, and life. And yet we haven't made that clear. We haven't been transparent about how that's the case. And so this program that I established with my colleagues um, under faculty leadership uh, did a a first-year seminar, had students with peer uh, faculty and staff mentors uh, had a, a sophomore experience, a senior capstone experience, but did things like uh, as students were graduating, uh, made them go up and down an elevator and do an elevator pitch explaining how their <laughs> curriculum connects to their career. Literally as an elevator pitch. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and so we focused on that. We also focused on issues of equity and inclusion. And under uh, uh, my presidency, during my tenure there, we... Uh, made a decision to admit trans men and trans women. Um, so that was a a radical departure in written policy, if not in uh, practice at Mount Holyoke. Um, and then looked at, at issues of faculty development and at the development of graduate programs as well. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and when did you make the decision and how did you make it that it was time to, to take on the opportunity at AAC and U? Similar to the decision with Mount Holyoke, I received a call from a search firm saying that I had been nominated for this leadership role. And I had just signed another contract with Mount Holyoke. We had just uh, embarked on our second strategic plan under my leadership. And I said, I, I really have you know, made a commitment. There's important work to be done. I'm not interested at, at this time. And, and they called back a month later and said, really, can't we persuade you to do this? And, and in that month, um, it, it had been building. But I came to realize the sense of urgency around the real threat to higher education in general and liberal education in particular, and thought I could be a better advocate at the national level through AAC and News mission of advancing the democratic purposes of higher education by making equity, quality, and excellence um, the foundations for liberal education. And and can you say a little about, obviously, we have a number of associations within higher ed. How do you see the role of AAC and U relative to ACE, ACE or CIC or the other associations? Well, AAC and U is a bit different in that we represent a thousand institutions from across all sectors in higher education, from community colleges to research ones, small residential liberal arts colleges, uh, online colleges and universities, HBCUs, tribal colleges. So um, it's, I think that is one of our most significant strengths is the diversity of our membership. ACE, the American Council on Education, is an advocacy organization. They do lobbying. They deal with legislative issues. Um, there's a lot of overlap with our membership, and there is with the Council of Independent Colleges as well. Um, Marjorie Haas, who uh, is now the 
president of, of CIC and I work closely together. We're both philosophers. We've both been college presidents. And uh, we recognize that now is the time when all associations, all colleges and universities need to work together to shape the agenda for higher education and push back against what is an unwarranted and unprecedented uh, intrusion into academic affairs. And it sounds like your partnership with ACE is, is similar to CIC and NICU in terms of one focusing on the advocacy um, role and the other on sort of the professional development and the, the building of the sector um, of, of the institutions. Is that that's right. We work closely together through the Washington Higher Education Secretariat, and so we we meet regularly. And but in the seventies, uh, AAC and you made a decision to stop engaging in lobbying and turn that over to NICU. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, I'd love to turn now to to your book. Um, uh, as I say, what we value: public health, social justice, and education for educating for democracy. Um, you wrote this uh, during the pandemic, and as I understand from the forward, it came out of uh, what sounds like a very uh, interesting lecture series that Mercer College has um, named for one of their former deans um, to support the creation of Phi Beta Kappa there. Um, can you can you say a little about uh, sort of how you decided what to cover in the book? I thought it was interesting that one essay deals with medical ethics and end-of-life issues, and the other two more with your, I would say, your day job and, and the current issues in higher ed. So just curious in terms of how you thought about the three coming together, the topics, and how, how you approached it. Mm, yeah, that's such a great question. I was, you know, as, as we were sitting in Northeastern Connecticut in, in quarantine and lockdown with my family members, um, I was, you know, watching the news, reading the papers, thinking about this moment in time when uh, just as statistics were being revealed regarding the disparately negative impact of COVID-19 on communities of color, we saw massive protests against mask mandates and vaccination mandates. And, and we saw you know, Governor Whitmer and others being threatened with kidnapping and execution because of the stances they had taken to protect the health and well-being of the citizens within the state. And, and I was thinking about whether there were any common values, because I had similar experiences in terms of talking to my neighbors about these issues and and what they believed. And these are people that I've known for many years that I I like, respect, in some instances, love, and, and yet we had radically different perspectives. And so I was trying to identify some of the the common values that we had that could help us move forward with our shared objectives of a pluralistic preserving a pluralistic democracy and um and so that led me to to look at first and foremost why we were willing to countenance so many deaths in in America and and look at this transition that was taking place in medical ethics between the the model that we had had in the past with foregrounded really privileged patient autonomy the patient gets to decide and now we were moving to a more utilitarian model public health model where we saw physicians having to make decisions about who gets the last ventilator um, whether they should hold hands with a, a dying patient or who doesn't have relatives with them because of prohibitions against uh, visitation, or go treat somebody who might survive, um, whether to go into the hospitals in the first place because they didn't have proper protective equipment. And these were decisions that um, they didn't learn uh, how to make in medical school. Um, and so I was thinking about the value of a liberal education. I taught at the Brown Medical School for a number of years in their affinity group program. I used to teach medical ethics and at URI and at the University of Hartford and Mount Holyoke. So uh, that led me to think about uh, these protests where, where the doctors, when they were leaving the hospitals um, after working, you know, grueling, sometimes 48-hour shifts, they were exhausted, um, they couldn't see their families. Um, so they're met with a, a barrage of protesters 
who are saying, you know, go back to China if you, you know, if you want to be a communist. And uh, so it seemed outrageous to me. Um, and I was then I started thinking about the limits of free speech. At what point <laughs> um, it becomes hate speech, and at what point it becomes a death threat, because they were certainly being threatened. So the tweets with um, Governor Whitmer and others threatening to kill them um, is that protected under the First Amendment? So that that led to the second chapter on freedom of expression and and the limits to that, and and then I kept coming back to the role of liberal education in informing these debates, the ways in which a liberal education in its classical sense with the Stoics was designed to free the mind from one's past dispositions to entertain the possibility that some of one's most fundamentally held beliefs might actually be mistaken. And so that's how I was trying to, to tie things together. And and in terms of the the practicalities of this during the pandemic and everything, did you deliver all three lectures there, or how how did that work in terms of the actual the lecture itself, and then turning into the book? The lecture was postponed for a year, and then um, I had the option of being in person or doing it virtually. And I made the decision to do it virtually. We were still, and we still are mm-hmm. <laughs> um, at a moment where health concerns concerns are, are paramount. Mm-hmm. And did you, did you integrate all three in the lecture or how, how did you approach them? Cause each is a pr- pretty meaty, significant topic. Yes. That was, so I did three different lectures. So it was on, yes. Um, and, and that was just was so much fun and um, a true, true honor and delight, not only to be able to talk about my work, but to honor um, the Malcolm Lester and to pay tribute to Phi Beta Kappa, which was founded in, in similar situations to these, it was a time of, of um, great dissent where there was a good deal of disagreement about American independence. And so these five young men gathering at the Raleigh Tavern uh, made a commitment to, to talk about um, issues that were important to the day. Um, should there be an armed militia in times of freedom, whether um, slavery was justified um, and, and so they made a commitment to to friendship, to to morality, and to literature, meaning uh, the free exchange mm-hmm. of ideas and the unfettered pursuit of the truth. So, so just to go into each of them in in a little detail. So, for the first chapter, I, I in addition to dealing with some of the really, you know, horrific decisions that that the pandemic has posed for physicians, you you talk a fair bit about the end of life issues. Um, I, you know, I, I, I was very uh, influenced. I've probably the book I've given most was Atul Gawande's on being mortal um, and, you know, his very personal and thoughtful account of that. And it feels like this is one of those areas where we seem to have a lot of these issues now in American life where, where the majority of people are and what they say they want and what is actually happening in the system, that there's a big disconnect. Do you, do you see a, a, a good way forward there and models that are working here within the U.S. healthcare system for basically having those conversations and, and getting toward a, an end of life that is more in keeping with what most people say that they, they would value? Um, I'm not sure. I, I think th- <laughs> I, there's been a generational shift that provides me with some sense of optimism. But I was reading an article, I think it was in the Times yesterday, it was the, either the Times or the Post, about how uh, people are engaging in feudal care for their pets. I understand the temptation. You don't want to let your pet go, um, but it prolongs suffering. And when there's no good end to that treatment, um, it's not clear that it's the best way forward. So we do have this entrenched notion of death as un-American. Um, it is perceived as a failure and so distinctly un-American in that regard. Um, but no one wants to uh, cause suffering for their loved ones. And very few people want to allow it for themselves um, so we have to have a radical reimagining of the way that we approach these issues. Uh, I talk a lot in the first chapter about 
moral distress. Moral distress is a term that was coined by Andy Jamatin in the context of nursing ethics to refer to situations in which an individual believes they know the right course of action to take, but they feel constrained, coerced because of institutional and organizational cultures to do something they believe is wrong. Um, Physicians were experiencing enormous levels of moral distress with this. But even before that, um, there's been a, a shift away from discussions in the 60s and 70s. You remember the, the Karen Ann Quinlan case, um, Nancy Cruzan cases, where it, it the discussions were around patients' rights to refuse life-sustaining treatment in order to be able to die a natural death with dignity. Now, almost all of the cases around end of life are patients requesting futile care. Um, And and it's futile in the sense that it doesn't provide any uh, benefit other than prolonging life, which is one of the goals of medicine. But we have to ask ourselves, is life at any cost um, truly valuable? And, uh, you know, so we have to look at the quality of life, but also the expense. And I know that, you know, so I talk about the uh, Sarah Palin's comments uh, when Barack Obama was trying to get the Affordable Care Act passed. And, you know, she said, I, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, have death panels set up so that my baby with Down syndrome can be told um, it's better that he be dead. And But that, but that wasn't the, what the conversation was like at all. And so our unwillingness to even talk about these issues And the rhetoric that was spinning out of control undermines the capacity of people to have uh, not only quality life, but quality in in dying. Now, the the optimism comes from the fact that we've got a new generation that are setting up websites that um, that are setting up um, salons where they talk about issues of death and the meaning of life. And, And so I'm seeing some transition, but we have to make sure that that is reflected in the medical training of physicians. Yeah. And that issue about, you know, our ability to engage in really informed dialogue, I think speaks directly to the, that transition to the second chapter you did on, on snowflakes, chilly climates and shouting to be heard the role of liberal education and weathering campus storms. And you've got a fascinating range of examples there of these controversies that have happened on campuses. I, I, I think you, you tried uh, very carefully to be balanced in terms of, of the framing of them. But, but I'm curious where you come out in the, in the tension between wanting to promote an inclusive, safe learning environment for all the, the members of the campus community and the protection of free speech and the, 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 the difference of views and, and how you see that balance in liberal arts institutions in the AAC and new members? It's such a challenge. Um, you know, I mentioned that a liberal education is, is grounded in the unfettered pursuit of the truth, a free exchange of ideas. The mission of colleges and universities is to create and disseminate knowledge. And uh, we need to be willing to consider views that we find uncomfortable, that we may regard as wrong. But we also have an obligation to protect um, the the rights of individuals who have been excluded from higher education. Uh, so equal protection requires that we not subject students, faculty, staff, community members to hostile environments. It's, it's interesting to me that the, the kinds of criticisms that higher education has faced, that the reference to snowflakes come from, comes from uh, traditionally the conservative, the right, um, saying that colleges and universities are bastions of liberal progressivism, uh, brainwashing the next generation of snowflakes to melt at the slightest abrasion of their sensibilities. So they didn't want to have any restrictions on what was said. And now we have 27 states in which there is legislation that proscribes the teaching of critical race theory, the 1619 project issues around gender, um, LGBTQ+. And, and so there seems to be a double standard. Some, some speech gets to be protected. Um, and, but now the claim is that that speech is divisive and divisive concepts shouldn't be allowed in the academy. So... Um, 
you know, I, I in the book, I, I quote Ronald Dworkin, political philosopher, who says democracy can be healthy uh, with no serious political argument if there's nevertheless consensus about what's to be done. And it can be healthy even if there's no consensus, if it does have this culture of argument, but it cannot remain healthy <laughs> with no real argument and uh, no agreement because then it becomes just a tyranny of numbers. And I'm afraid that's the point where we are, where the polarization and partisanship in our society has gotten to the point where it doesn't matter what kind of evidence we present in the academy, that particular views are true or false. In fact, we know that psychologically people double down on their false beliefs when they're presented with incontrovertible evidence against their views. They care more about kinship, whether they trust the person espousing those views. And, and so we need to look at ways in which the policies and practices we have in the academy ensure that everyone experiences higher education as a place of welcome and belonging. That includes conservative students, liberal students, and people who don't have views about politics all along the spectrum if we are going to meet our historic mission of educating for democracy. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And just to pick up on on your last point there, I'm guessing it was true at Mount Holyoke, certainly at Chatham, that one of the groups on campus that can feel disenfranchised it is more socially conservative rural re- religious students where they are their views what they grew up with may may not be in the mainstream of where most of the the faculty or the other students on campus are how do you see the opportunities to make them feel included and engage in dialogue across different perspectives yeah great question this is one of the initiatives we have at AACNU, uh, it's called Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation. We started this project in 2016 under funding from the Kellogg Foundation and Gail Christopher, who was a program officer at the time. And we received money from the Newman's Own Foundation and uh, a number of other associations and funding agencies. And it is to jettison a belief in a hierarchy of human value through narrative change listening to one another's stories, um, understanding the legacies of racism and and white supremacy in a way that isn't calling anybody out, but really calling them into conversations about how we can move forward. Um, But it's difficult. And we have a similar initiative with Ibu Patel and uh, um, Interfaith America, which used to be known as Interfaith Youth Corps. And it's speaking across religious differences as we're seeing these horrific acts of, of hate, um, anti-Semitism, uh, racist acts, like what happened in Buffalo, um, there, there's a, a sense on the part of so many students that there really is no way forward. And that's why we're seeing unprecedented, really, uh, to, I've said to use that word three times now, but really unprecedented levels of student mental health. Uh, on college campuses, there's been a 135% increase in students uh, identifying mental health needs. So we have to find a way to come together to meet their emotional needs and to to make sure that everyone feels included. Uh, So through programs like this, through ensuring that issues of diversity, equity, and quality are at the forefront of public discussion and private debate every single day, but also paying attention to what my colleague Sia Versheldon talks about um, in her work on cognitive bandwidth, that students who are experiencing racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, um, who are food and shelter insecure, aren't going to be able to focus on their studies. They actually have a diminished capacity to learn. And we uh, in higher education need to recognize that reduction in cognitive bandwidth and find ways to restore it through uh, purposeful engagement with these issues. That's something we have regarded as outside of our purview, but it must, it must be center um, central to, to our work today. I, I wanted to ask you more about the the, the truth um, racial healing and transformation initiative. Um, it, it fits very closely with you know we're Chatham's campus. We're located right next to the Tree of Life synagogue, and so that was a 
a, a sort of defining event for us. And we've been partnering closely with the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh and the folks who are reimagining the rebuilding of Tree of Life as an international symbol of combating all forms of identity-based violence and discrimination. And, and so we, we worked closely with Ibu Patel um, and, and introduced the notion of intergroup dialogue at Chatham. And so I was curious, as you're looking, I think the goal of building up to 150 campuses from this effort, what, what, are, the, what are the initial results you're seeing? Because I think one of the, the distinctive elements of 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 your approach is, is that it, it's outward looking. It's not just for the campus, but engaging with community partners around these issues. And, and so I'm just curious in terms of impact on students, impact on those communities. Uh, it's had an extraordinary impact. We've been so gratified to see mm-hmm. it. Uh, different institutions, you, you mentioned that we require community partners in this project, um, have have partnered with different types of, of groups. So I think about Hamlin University, uh, two and a half miles from where Philando Castile was killed um, by a police officer. And there they're working with local police on issues of truth, racial healing, transformation, um, criminal justice reform. Um, the Citadel was a place where they literally turned their backs on the black community um, by, by shifting the entrance to their building so that um, the black community would have to go around the other side. So very uh, symbolic messaging, strong messaging. Um, and they're looking at reparations and ways that they can honor um, the graduates of color who, who have gone unrecognized and to engage in a kind of reparations and rest, restorative justice with the community. And so they have, they have literally changed the, the buildings. Um, Brown is working, Brown University is working with Muslim communities. Um, so the, there are different approaches. And we have seen, I think about um, Rutgers Newark in particular, that their work, their center has been set up in a public library. And so you've got not only college students, but K through 12 uh, students who were there. And we were at a presentation where a fifth grader had made a plea um, around a particular issue of, you know, whether a prison should be built in a backyard somewhere based on the truth, racial healing and transformation work. And so we are seeing this ripple effect and, and it is truly transformative and inspiring to see how this work can help us move forward. One of the things that I think is is making the job of all college university presidents, but also tackling these issues so difficult, um, is the impact of social media. And I'm curious in, in how you see it in terms of how we prepare our students well for it and how we uh, address it. To, to give a specific example, so the, the tension between free speech and creating an environment where students, whatever their background, feel safe and able to learn effectively. How do you view it in terms of faculty ability, in terms of what they're doing, not in the classroom, but in terms of their own lives, but posting? And of course, the boundaries aren't there anymore. So, So how to sort of, how to get the balance right between allowing them their ability of free speech, but also creating the learning environment that we want to foster the you know in the 60s there was a a supreme court case um, that protected academic freedom as a first amendment issue and it uh, talked about warned against the the pall of orthodoxy that can be cast over institutions if we impose uh, particular constraints around political viewpoints and yet uh, now in, in 1940 AACNU joined AAUP in writing a statement about academic freedom and academic responsibility. We often forget that second part, the academic responsibility, which says you can't just say whatever you want that's unrelated to your field, even if it's related to your field. You have to be mindful of the your positionality, the, the specific role that you play, not only in the classroom, but in society. And so that's what we need to take into account. Now, I think about you know the recent case 
um, at an institution in DC where um, the individual resigned uh, after tweeting something about Supreme Court justices. And there are no, um, he, uh, the assertion was there are no qualified black female candidates for the Supreme Court. I was looking for someone else. So that person didn't think the job could be done at an institution that would even question his right to say these words. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, th- there are many other cases. Um, Felicia Rashad at Howard University, she's a dean. When she's, we tweeted out her support for Bill Cosby when he was released from prison on uh, technical grounds, but legitimate <laughs> grounds within our court system. Uh, the question, you know, there were calls for her to resign. Can she do her job as a dean in advocating for uh, women and men who have are survivors of sexual assault um, when she says such things. So uh, maybe, maybe not, but you have to, it's not, it's not clear cut. We have to look at the role people, roles people are occupying. Um, And the fact that it's much more difficult because of social media to engage in this strong role differentiation that the the roles I have exempt me from otherwise, um, uh, binding moral responsibilities. Yeah. And I, I'm curious, because you've thought so so deeply about these issues, where do you come down on the issues around um, renaming monuments? Um, we, we've had a, a, a version of those issues ourselves at Chatham. We have a, a lecture hall that was named for Margaret Sanger, um, a controversial figure in terms of a champion for women's reproductive rights, but also a believer in eugenics. And, you know, we we had a two-year-long process with faculty and students to think about all of the aspects of the issues. I'm curious, did you deal with these issues at all at Mount Holyoke? And have you a perspective in terms of where it's appropriate to retain it, the name, where where it's 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 appropriate to remove it? Uh, we didn't have that particular issue at Mount Holyoke. We certainly had a number of issues um, uh, where students, I mean, the Valley, the Pioneer Valley in Massachusetts was very active. So if there wasn't an issue at Mount Holyoke, there was surely an issue at Hampshire, UMass, Smith, or Amherst um, that was going to spill over. And and we saw, um, those of us who were presidents in the Valley saw that students were handed scripts um, and it, they were making unconditional, non-negotiable demands. And, and no, they didn't want to have conversation. They saw that as a somehow diminishing of their perspective and, and used the words harmful. You're, you're, you would further harm us by discussing these issues with you. So I think that's dangerous because um, higher education needs to um, – well, one of our responsibilities is to teach students the importance of uh, engagement with one another, listening critically and with understanding and coming to a shared agreement, um, understanding that not every decision is going to make everyone happy. Um, I've worked closely with Ron Crutcher, who was the president of the University of Richmond, and he was president of Wheaton College when I was president of Mount Holyoke. Uh, and he had to deal with this issue of naming. And, you know, he's an African-American, um, has worked his entire life toward racial and social justice. And yet the students disagreed with his decision and were protesting it. Um, and that was to, to retain some of the names um, of racists on uh, buildings because he thought it was an, an important historical note and that we could counter that with further narrative. And putting it in that context, if we erase history, there's there's no way to um, learn from it. Yeah, and th- that's why I was really pleased with the the outcome we came because there's now two educational plaques on the back. And my concern, particularly with what we're seeing with the the leaked Supreme Court, is that almost none of our current students understand the history of the fight for women's reproductive rights, nor do they understand the history of the eugenics movement and how widely spread it was taught in the U.S., not just not Nazi Germany. And so it, it feels to me like if if we're not, we're not doing our educational job, if we're not making sure students 
understand both those histories. And, and, and if we erase it, then they may not get either. I, it's true. I, my, my son, uh, Spencer, has a, a new exhibit that's going up on, on Juneteenth um, at a museum. And in it, he talks about the ways in which the, the rhetoric and legislation in the uh, Reconstruction period and in the antebellum period really mirrors what we're seeing today. And so the United Daughters of the Confederacy uh, lobbied for legislation that would prohibit the performing of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And they use the same language that we're using today because it promotes division among the races. It contains divisive concepts and it's a false view of history because it represents as evil what was really a benign institution. And so we're hearing that same thing with attempts to ban critical race theory in the 1619 Project. It's divisive. It's teach, it teaches false concepts. Um, it's un-American. We cannot learn from history unless we know it. If we're not allowed to talk about these things, then we are subverting the very purpose of, of American higher education. So, so that, I think, leads us naturally into your, your third and final chapter on preparing students for work, citizenship, and life in the 21st century, reestablishing liberal education as a public good. Uh, I, there's been a, a lot, I think, of, of really good um, material on this written in the last few years, thinking of Ron Daniels' book on what universities owe democracy. You reference extensively Tony Carnevale's twenty. Uh, 20- study on the role of education in taming authoritarian um, attitudes. Uh, I'm curious where where you see your perspective um, relative to these. It it feels like there's pretty close alignment. Are are there particular points of emphasis or or key things that, that you want to emphasize on these issues in terms of the role that our institutions can play in preserving our democracy? Yeah, I, and I, you know, somebody else I, I quote in the book is Michael Sandel, who talks about the fact that um, <laughs> stigmatization against the poorly educated is the last acceptable prejudice in the United States. And we need to think about the ways in which the language we use lends to that, enhances that sense of stigmatization and and a creation of other. And and look at the reasons why there's such mistrust in higher education, why we're viewed as elitist and and not relevant. Um, And that's going to require us to position all colleges and universities as anchor institutions where we demonstrate that our success is inextricably linked to the psychological, social, health, educational, economic well-being of those in the communities in which we're located, those we seek to serve. And, and that visibility in communities, that taking advantage of local epistemologies to help inform our work will do a couple of things. I mean, it will create access and pipelines for, for students who have been underserved, who are skeptical about the value of higher education, um, and it will allow us to restore some public trust in higher education by making visible the work that that we do. People, do, I, I was struck in, um, you know, when I talk about what takes place in colleges and universities in in local communities, they're unaware of the fact that cancer research is being done at colleges and universities, or that research on childhood asthma. They they think we spend you know three hours a week. Um, in classrooms talking about, you know, how many angels dance on the head of a pin. They don't know that we're doing work that affects their lives, but why would they? We don't serve as public intellectuals. We're not in the communities. Um, And so we need to use whatever vectors we have available to us to make clear um, the the work that's being done in the academy. And that that was part of the impetus behind my doing the academic minute, this, the radio show on, on NPR that, you know, it was 90 seconds because it's an academic minute. <laughs> but it it gives us a glimpse, it gives listeners a glimpse into what's going on in college campuses, what's taking place with research, and how we can work together. But of course, not everybody listens to NPR. So how can we make the case um, in, in churches and in synagogues and mosques and um, uh, at the local town hall? What, what can we do to... Um, present ourselves as thought leaders, which we once were. And academics were turned to to address all of the important issues of the day, including, you know, who's going to win the next 
pennant. <laughs> Probably not the Red Sox this year, but <laughs> um, but we've lost that, and and that's what we need to restore. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of the practices, the approaches you're advocating for that would achieve that, I think also align with what the the broader research on just good learning environments is suggesting, right? So interdisciplinary work, work engaged on real world problems, work with deep community partnerships, those would have those other benefits you point to. But I think the the research is pretty clear that that also provides the, the richest learning environments for students. And absolutely. And I argue that for far too long, we have asked students to answer questions for which we already know the answers. We need to engage them in the unscripted problems of the future and move away from this notion of excellence derived from the ranking and, and sorting of students based on high stakes exams and, and look at trajectories and, and instill a growth mindset that just because you fail at one thing in in one instance doesn't mean that you can't learn that or you're not excellent at it, that um, you have the capacity to learn these things, that talent uh, is not innate with respect to to many of the subjects that we're studying. And and the idea that it has been has held back women and uh, students of color. So it really is calling for a radical reimagining of the way that we deliver, assess, higher education and the way that we support faculty development around these issues. Yeah. And I'm curious because my sense of, you know, at the moment I'm chairing the 11 colleges, universities that we have here in Pittsburgh, the consortium and for Chatham and I think all of the inst- our partners in the city, I, I see a huge amount of activity going on that that would align with what you've described, that we're, we're, we're they're making really significant investments, sometimes very decentralized by departments, by faculties, but engaging in all sorts of ways that are, are benefiting the local communities. And yet there seems to be a disconnect between that very real sort of micro day-to-day involvement and the broader issue you point to, which is the, the, the public intellectual, the confidence in higher ed as, as one of the great resources and public goods that promotes, that, that we've had in the U.S., that, that you know, it's, it's like people say, you know, I, I don't trust politicians, but I like my own local one. Do you have a, a feeling of how we bridge that gap? Or is that a fair assessment that, that you know, we're seeing it institution by institution, but not the, the, the sort of the more collective positive impact for the sector? No, that's exactly right. That research has shown that while people report not having a lot of confidence in in higher education, and whereas there used to be a, a, a gap in terms of political perspectives, with conservatives having less confidence in higher education than liberals, now conservatives and liberals alike are united in their belief that higher education is headed in the wrong direction. And yet, if you ask them about their local institutions or the institution from which they graduated, they have a lot of confidence in that place. And and so it's, we have to reshape the narrative again, you know, create an ascendant narrative around the transformative power of education in general, liberal education in particular for all students. And uh, so Community-engaged work uh, is helpful in that regard, making visible what it is that we do, um, but getting back to this notion of taking advantage of local epistemologies, saying to folks in communities, we want to partner with you on the problems that are relevant to our community, that are not only relevant to the researcher who's going to be publishing an article that six people are going to read in a peer-reviewed journal, but to to the life of this community, and, and that will make a big difference. Given, given those challenges that you describe in the book and the others you just see day to day in terms of you know the the public perceptions of higher ed, but also what we know are the very real business challenges the sector is facing, particularly smaller private institutions, a lot of the less selective public institutions. How do you see the the, the next decade playing out for higher ed? Are there are there parts of it that give you optimism? in terms of, of how, how the sector will confront these challenges? 
Yeah, I'm filled with optimism every single day when I hear about the extraordinary work that's taking place on colleges and universities across the country and around the world. I think the biggest challenge facing higher education today is a growing economic and racial segregation. And we look at the, the recent statistics that came out from the National Student Clearinghouse on the decline in student populations. The, we lost 1.4 million students um, since the start of the pandemic. The the biggest hit was um, with community colleges that had a 13% decline. And the only demographic that's con- continued to decline um, this spring has been African-American students. We lost African-American and Latinx males between the ages of 18 and 25. But equally disconcerting is that um, more than 50% of high school students r- report not wanting to go to a four-year institution. They don't want a four-year college degree. They want fast tracks. They want credentials. And, uh, you know, so we need to look at new models for higher education. Um, Brendan Bustide um, from Kaplan University Partners is on my board, and he talks about the credigree, partnering with K-12 through business industry to create credentialing systems, stackable credentials. Um I think we need to, in the academy, double down on our defense of liberal education as the best preparation. Uh, we know that employers are looking for students, graduates with critical thinking skills, the capacity to write, uh, speak, and think with precision, coherence, and clarity, people who can work in diverse teams, um, who have information and technological literacy, but um they're also equally concerned about mindsets. They want uh, graduates, workers who are resilient, adaptable, and flexible in the face of rapid change, um, who, who don't get easily bored. <laughs> and so we need to focus on teaching mindsets in addition to skills and competencies. And, you know, you, you, in talking about social media before, one of the biggest purposes of liberal education is to enable individuals to discern the truth, to be mindful of the dangers of ideological filtering, and to engage in, in moral imagination, imagining what it's like to be in the shoes of another different from oneself. So in this age where there's a barrage of uh, disinformation and misinformation, we have to focus on this as a primary goal of, of liberal education. I see ways that colleges and universities are, are doing this, but I am concerned that this moment with now, you know, an economic recession looming is going to exacerbate the economic and racial segregation because uh, community colleges, while we have free college programs through college promise are uh, being defunded in ways that, uh, threaten to undermine the, the progress towards student success and, um, and state institutions in, in across the board are, are struggling. So as, as institutions are being merged within state systems, so we need to think about ways that all institutions, uh, independent, public, community college, four-year research institutions can partner uh, in, in moving forward. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think, you know, one of uh, great strengths of higher ed is the resilience of the institutions. But, you know, in almost every other sector of the economy, when you see an imbalance between supply and demand, you do see restructuring, partnering, consolidation, and figuring out how to do that in a way that preserves mission, preserves the best of what institutions do, but is going to you know, enable them to survive and hopefully thrive in this environment, I think is going to be a real, uh, real focal point for the next, next 10 years. Yes. Another significant strength of American higher education is its independence. It's, it's capacity to be self-governed. And now we are seeing unwarranted intrusion into that self-governance in states like Florida, Texas, and many other states um, where Governor DeSantis has um, prohibited not only the teaching of certain subjects, but now mandated that uh, the state institutions change accreditors every five years. So when we remove that independence from academic institutions, uh, we threaten their purpose and, and we need to be paying attention to what's happening in American higher education because it is attractive to, to those around the world because 
of the model that we have had. That model is being eroded. And we also have to look at the fact that international students might not be so willing to come to a place where we have gun laws that um, allow for open carry on some of our institutions in, in certain states like Texas. Yeah, no, we, you know, that's obviously been a huge strength of the U.S. system, but seen a real erosion of that and an emergence of much stronger alternatives than than have existed before. So. Uh, yet another thing we'll have to face. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for taking the time to to speak with me today. It's been a real pleasure and I'm really grateful for the leadership you're providing for the, the sector in these uh, challenging times and in, in trying to show the the underlying benefits of, of, uh, of a liberal education. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me and thanks for all that you do.